Thank you, Lilia, for that. That was lovely. Um, and it's a great verse that you read in Ecclesiastes 1, verse 13. I'll read it again. I set my heart to seek and search out by wisdom concerning all that is done under heaven. This burdensome task God has given to the sons of man by which they may be exercised. So thank you for reminding us of that. I'm glad Leah said it's one of her favorite books because Ecclesiastes is actually a very um, well-known book and a favorite of many Christian and non-Christians. Um, do you know any famous, anyone else? Ecclesiastes, top five, top five? Okay, Evelyn. <laughs> um, you are in the company of U.S. President John F. Kennedy. It was his favorite uh, book. Uh, and so when at his funeral, they read Ecclesiastes chapter three. And a lot of individuals, especially a lot of agnostics, uh, really value the book of Ecclesiastes. So they, can, they say that they can relate to it. And um, non-Christians who are just reading the Bible just to understand what it's saying um, can really relate to the book of Ecclesiastes as well. But while for some, the book of Ecclesiastes is a great book, for others, it's a very confusing book. Um, in fact, Jewish scholars call the book of Ecclesiastes the book of waters without end. <laughs> just waves and waves coming upon. Um, and, you know, it's, it just has, it's such a complex book. For example, the book of Ecclesiastes has 37 questions that are not answered. Questions that start with, who knows? Or who can say? Or what? Why? And there's no answers to these questions. Also, the book of Ecclesiastes um, has 125 negations out of 222 verses. So 125 out of 222 verses are negations. These negations talk about how work is vanity, wickedness is vanity, religion is vanity, philosophy is vanity, everything is vanity, um, says Solomon, who wrote the book, and he was a king. Now, the Hebrew word um, that is translated vanity here in English is hebel. Can everyone say that with me? Hebel. Now, it's um, supposed to sound like breath, hebel. And it's a sign kind of breath. And it literally means vapor. It can be translated as vanity, abyss, nothing. Okay. And so when Solomon says work is hevel, okay, and life is hevel and, and, and all this and all that, everything is hevel. He's saying, um, in other words, that everything is temporary. Everything is vapor. Um, nothing lasts. In fact, this book, um, about nothingness and the temporary kind of nature of things is read every year by the Jews during the feast of Sukkoth, which is the feast of tabernacles. So every year, this was a feast that God actually instituted, um, when he let the Israelites out of Egypt and into Canaan, he wanted them to celebrate how God delivered them and how they lived in the desert. And so he told them every year at a certain time, I want you to live in a tent, um, over the years, they've kind of fancied it up, so it's not just a tent. And so for one whole week, they stay outdoors. Um, many people will travel into Jerusalem if they can, and they'll set up these temporary huts um, and dwelling places. They'll sleep there, they'll eat there, and notice how they've put different kind of um, reminders of, of early harvest. And it was supposed to be a time of Thanksgiving, um, a reminder that life is short. And they were supposed to be camping out as a reminder that there are pilgrims on earth, um, that, th that ultimately um, their home is not 
here on earth. And so every year the Jews have that opportunity to be reminded that their, that their uh, life here um, is not permanent. And we've kind of um, adapted that to our camp meetings. Our big camps are kind of that similar idea of being uncomfortable. Uh, you're welcome to come with us at the end of October to be uncomfortable for a weekend. Um, and it's to remind you that um, we are pilgrims. Life is temporary. We are journeying and um, nothing is truly permanent. And, you know, the book of Ecclesiastes is read every year during the Feast of Tabernacles. So the Jews will read the entire book of Ecclesiastes during the Feast of Sukkoth um, as a reminder about the ephemeral temporary characteristics of earth. But is that all there is to this book? Is the point of Ecclesiastes that nothing lasts and so therefore don't put your hope in anything? And the end, is that what it's saying? Philosophers like uh, George Santayana, professor at Harvard from 1889 to 1912, said, Why shouldn't things be largely absurd, futile, and transitory? They are so, and we are so, and they and we go very well together. Not a Christian. Another professor, Joseph uh, Wood Crutch um, from Columbia University, wrote, There is no reason to suppose that a man's life has any more meaning than the life of the humblest insect that crawl from one annihilation to another also not a Christian. Um, so are they right? And, and this is kind of what a lot of philosophers have concluded. A lot of philosophers have concluded there is no meaning in life. There is no meaning in um, religion. There is um, nothing beyond what is. Everything is just physical, material. And in, once it goes, it goes. And we are just part of that cycle of life that comes and goes. And it is all meaningless. Is that what Solomon is saying? And at first glance, it seems like it because he keeps saying all is, what's that word again? Hevel, right? He keeps saying all is hevel, all is vanity, all is nothing, all is abyss. And so you, you read Ecclesiastes and you wonder, okay, Solomon, I'm thoroughly depressed now. Is, is that the end? Is that where you're leaving me? But the book of Ecclesiastes is not actually leaving us there. It definitely gets you to the place where you feel hopeless. <laughs> On purpose, because Solomon wants us to realize that all is nothing. Because once we realize that all the work that we do, our career, our family, you know, everything we've built up, our home, our investments, when we come to that place that all of that could vanish and that none of those things bring us intrinsic value, it's only at that point can we then appreciate the fact that everything we have is a gift. In other words, when all is truly hevel, when all is truly vanity, when all is truly nothing and, and um, has nothing intrinsically good to bring to us, that's when we can just, instead of being attached to them and, and, and assigning value to them and assigning value to ourselves based on those things, we can just sit back and say, everything I have at this moment is a gift. It could vanish, it could go away, but I have them right now. And it's the grace of God. Here's another way to think about it. A concentration victim before he was caught said, before they caught me, I lived in fear. Now that they have me, I live in hope. You see, hope is not hope when you have hope. You, you experience that desire for hope and you, and you yearn for that, um, better, uh, end result when you are hopeless, when you're in a situation that is desperate. And so what Solomon is trying to say is, hey, 
When you realize that all your righteousness and all your good doing is like filthy rags, and the things you want to do, you don't do, and the things you don't want to do, you do. And when you come to that place of nothingness where you're struggling and wondering, God, is is this really all I am? Who will deliver me from this body of death? And that's when the answer comes through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who gives us victory. And who gives us life, and who gives us blessings, and who gives us this and that. And so, it's really when we deconstruct ourselves and our lives from all the things we usually tack on to say, "I am a pastor," "I am a mother," "I am," and we define ourselves in a lot of ways. Perhaps through our relationships, perhaps through our accomplishments, perhaps through our education, whatever it may be. We often assign value to ourselves based on the things that, really, if we look at it. Is hevel? What does it really mean? And Solomon wants us to deconstruct and peel off those layers, and ultimately just come to the place where we we say, we have nothing, we are nothing, but everything we are and everything we have is then a gift from God. All is nothing, therefore everything we do have is grace. It's the gift of God. God wants us to enjoy each moment as it is, rather than what we want it to be. And so, the famous passage in Ecclesiastes that、um, is usually quoted a lot is this beautiful passage in Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes chapter three: "There is a time for everything, and a season for every activity under the heavens. A time to be born, and a time to die. A time to plant, and a time to uproot." A time to kill and a time to heal, a time to tear down and a time to build, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to scatter stones and a time to gather them, a time to embrace and a time to refrain, a time to search and a time to give up, a time to keep and a time to throw away, a time to tear and a time to mend, a time to be silent and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. What do workers gain from their toil? I've seen the burden God has laid on the human race. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the human heart. Yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. I know that there is nothing better for people than to do, be happy and to do good while they live. That each of them may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all their toil. This is the gift of God. You see, there are seasons in life. There are good times. There are bad times. There are times of beginnings and there's time of endings. Time for hellos and time for goodbyes and time for you know great success and time for failure. And there's time where we go through these different cycles of life, and we realize that we actually don't have a whole lot of control over those times. We like to have control. And so we work really hard. We strive really hard to try to stay in one season of life that we enjoy. But the truth is, we can't control them. And God says, "Stop trying to control. Stop trying to work towards and build yourself the security that is actually not safe at all." He says, "Just take each moment of time as gift, as a moment of grace. Enjoy it." And recognize that it is from God, and find meaning and satisfaction in what you have right now, rather than what you want. 
in the verse that says he makes everything beautiful in its time. God doesn't promise that our lives will be, you know, one season of joy. But he does promise that each season in its time ultimately is going to weave together a fabric that will be beautiful when you step back. And, you know, we are so short-sighted that we can't see that. Uh, when we are in that moment of pain, when we are in the moment of distress and difficulty, we think to ourselves, can we quickly pass by this season? Can we get to that other season where I enjoy myself a lot better? Um, but we don't realize that while we see the ugliness of the underside of the tapestry, that if we were to be able to see that beautiful side, right, and we step back and we look, that you can see the mosaic of colors and fabric that together make up who you are and ultimately what your life is in the scheme of this world. And perhaps there's no meaning to it. I like how Solomon says, he has set eternity in the human heart. In other words, he has, if we long for something more, it's because we were created for something more. If we long for meaning in this life, that's because God created us to have meaning. Unlike what the philosophers who deny God's existence, they say, you want meaning in life? There is no meaning in life. We are just like every other animal, just like that insect that I quoted earlier, that we are going from one annihilation to the other. One death, another death. Who cares? But we are not created for that. If we long for more than that, it's because God created us for eternity. He has put eternity in our hearts. And that's why, and I think that's one of the greatest arguments um, for the existence of God, is the fact that we, we long for meaning. We long to create meaning in our relationships, in our lives, in our work. But while meaning is good, and while God has put eternity in our hearts so that we yearn for God and we yearn for more, Notice how in the very same sentence, Solomon says, yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. In other words, we don't know what God is doing. Yes, he gives us glimpses. Yes, he gives us revelations. But ultimately, we cannot answer the questions. 37 questions, I said, in this book. Who knows? Why? What? And Solomon doesn't try to answer them because he knows we cannot understand everything God has done. We don't know what the big tapestry is going to look like. And that is why Solomon says, stop trying so hard to control everything. Sit back and just say thank you for the moment that is given to us right now. Some of you know that um, I've shared before about how when Micah came along, we were very, un well, I don't know about Roy, but I was very unhappy <laughs> because I was not ready to have a child. And I've shared that story before. Um, well, Micah came along, and in retrospect, he came at the perfect time. Even though um, I was pregnant two weeks after I arrived in Australia and was very, very angry and was very, very sick, um, after he came along, I realized, man, this is actually the best gift that we could have had to do our church plant because, as some of you know, um, he was the reason some of you came out. <laughs> and um, to this day, I still have some friends who want to see Micah more than me. That's okay. I'm not hurt. But, um, you know, Micah came along just at the right time. And I think back to myself, if I had been, if, if, if we had had our first child when we were ready, who knows when that could have been. <laughs> But having had Micah during our, our first year here really brought people together, really brought community around him. Of course, after having had Micah, we, I wanted to have my second child two years apart from Micah. And I had a plan. You see, Micah was born in May, 
and my birthday's in May, my dad's birthday's in May. And I thought, well, how great would it be if our second child is born in August because Roy's birthday's in August and my mom's birthday's in August. So each three generations can share their, um, you know, month and we could have our family vacations around that clustered together. Um, and my best friend in America had her baby, um, two days after Micah. So they're two days apart. And she was also planning to have another child, and she actually got pregnant, and her baby was going to be due in August. Um, and so Roy and I had wanted to have a child, and so we had um, started planning on it last last year. And um, so around Christmas, like November to Christmas time um, of last year, I got pregnant. So I was so excited because the due date was going to be two days after my best friend's uh, baby was going to be born. It was in August. Everything was exactly as I had planned it. Um, and I was very excited because I like it when things go according to plan. <laughs> but Christmas Eve, I had a miscarriage and I lost that baby. And at the time, I was devastated because in my mind, it would have been perfect. They would have been two years apart, two years and three months apart, which is what my sister and I are, you know, which I thought was a good age. They could still be friends, but there could still be enough of a, you know, seniority so that Micah can, you know, be the boss. And, you know, I had this whole plan. And so, and um, of, of course, also my dad was, was going to be here. Um, and so the idea was that the baby would be here while he's here. He would help us and then he would leave. And then, you know, then I would go to Matt leave. I had this perfect plan. But it all went out the window when I had the miscarriage. And, you know, fortunately, I had my mom and my sister and my dad here for Christmas um, vacation. So they were there to comfort me. And, and, and we were on holidays. So I didn't have to work, etc. But I was devastated. For weeks, I asked God, God, why didn't I have, you know, back when I didn't want Micah, you gave me Micah. Um, of course, I said I'm very grateful. But now that I'm ready, now that I really want this other baby, how come it didn't happen? And I spent a lot of time arguing with God and crying out to God and, and um, telling him that I was not very happy with him. And then, you know, after a while, I said, all right, you know best. And... um there's nothing I can do about it. Time passed, and I'm not saying that um, there's answers to all the all the situations in our lives. Like I said, 37 questions in Ecclesiastes. How many more questions can we come up with in our own lives? And so I'm not saying there's an answer for things, but a few months later, um, as you know, when I had my gallbladder removed, um, and that happened very suddenly, of course, David was there <laughs> when I collapsed in pain as my gallstones I didn't know I had, five of them, got stuck in the liver, liver duct, um, and I ended up having an emergency gallbladder surgery. And I just remember being wheeled out um, for surgery, and the whole time I was just thinking, I'm so glad I'm not pregnant. I would have been um, probably by then like six months pregnant. And I don't know what, what could have happened at that point. Um, and I'm not saying that that's why I didn't have the baby and I'm not saying the gallbladder made it all better. I'm just saying that at the end of that time, I came to accept that there is a time for everything and there is a season and we cannot understand them and we cannot explain them. But in the moment that we're in, because we cannot control things and because whatever it is, 
the circumstance or the achievement or whatever it may be does not have intrinsic value of its own, that all we can simply do and actually the best thing we can do is sit back and just say, God, thank you for what I have right now. And once I've, once I came to accept that, um, I was able to look at Micah and say, thank you for my healthy son that I have. You know, thank you for my family. Thank you for the work that I'm able to do because I don't have a baby at this moment. Um, and the amount of things that um, God has placed in my life that don't bring value to me necessarily, but are things I can find meaning and satisfaction and joy in. And so I believe that Ecclesiastes is a book that once again says all is heaven, all is nothing, not to lead us to pessimism and depression, but to get us to realize, wow, all is then truly grace. All is a gift from God. And just in that moment, in that season, just say thank you, God, and to be able to appreciate um, what we do have and therefore find joy. According to... Um, psychology today gratitude is an emotion expressing appreciation for what one has as opposed to for example a consumer driven emphasis on what one wants gratitude is getting a great deal of attention as a facet of positive psychology studies show that we can deliberately cultivate gratitude and can increase our well-being and happiness by doing so in addition gratefulness and especially expression of it to others is associated with increased energy optimism and empathy if gratitude can do so much in just a, a secular setting, how much more does gratitude in the setting of the Bible where, where the Bible says, be grateful to God that all things are a gift, how much more can gratitude truly bring us then the meaning and the joy that we're looking for? Instead of looking at things, instead of looking at achievements, instead of looking at our lives and trying to find meaning and joy, just to simply say thank you and, and give that gratitude to God. And allow him then to give us the meaning and the joy that we need. You know, it's so tempting to look at magazines of celebrities relaxing on their yachts with their million, billions of dollars homes and their perfect bodies. And to think, oh, if I had that, and if I had that, I would be happier. But the truth is, that yacht can sink, that house can burn down, that body's going to get old, it will need lots of surgery. And the truth is, it's all hevel. It is all vanity. Nothing is permanent. But the one permanent thing is that God has put eternity in our hearts. And when we have that gratitude, when we have that joy towards God, that relationship, that lasts forever. And because God lasts forever, he's going to make sure that that joy then can last and that it won't just be a temporary one. So it's my challenge to you that wherever you are in your season of life, whatever time you are in, just sit back. And think about what you have. We've got nibbles and beverages on the side. We've got a beautiful community of friends here. Uh, we've got this time to, to relax and, and thank God. And so um, I challenge you to adopt that attitude of gratitude of where you are in your season of life. And that together we would be able to then um, appreciate God and find joy and meaning in our lives. Thank you.